You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The reinvention of Rishi has, for a while now, been a work in progress. Back in January, the Prime Minister set out to enrapture the electorate with his five big priorities for 2023. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. The list came and went and was largely forgotten, except by the people who held him to account for its failures. As inflation rocketed up, and the boats kept coming. And on top of that, adding to the state of perma-crisis, there was this. Walk out Wednesday, protesting over pay, jobs and conditions. Half a million workers across the country, including civil servants, university lecturers, train drivers and teachers. And this... Boris Johnson, uh, former Prime Minister, is going to stand down as an MP. He's quitting as an MP. Uh, quote, I'm stepping down forthwith and triggering an immediate by-election. Two other Tory MPs followed, with a third resignation dragged out over months, triggering a series of damaging by-elections. It looks like, and I do stress looks, like the Conservatives could be on for over a 1,000 individual losses. Since then, Sunak has been the submarine Prime Minister. We're told he's busy working away under the surface, but he's rarely seen. Now, just a few weeks away from completing a full year at number 10, he's re-emerging with a series of big policy announcements. I'm announcing today that we're going to ease the transition to electric vehicles. With the Tory party conference about to kick off in Manchester this weekend, the Prime Minister will have two big questions to answer. What is Sunakism and can it win the next election? Some of the people who know Rishi Sunak well, who've been a little bit disappointed with his performance as Prime Minister, would say he's a little bit confused about what he thinks about things now. We'll get a peek behind the scenes at number 10 with the Sunday Times chief political commentator, Tim Shipman. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the reinvention of Rishi. Can he save the Tories? Tim, we're deep in party conference season. You're about to head off to the Tories. Sometimes it's easy to forget it's been a long year for them. Just remind us of what party conference was like for the Tories last year. Well, when I think of last year's party conference, I think of the party on the Sunday evening, which is always held by the 1922 committee, the, the group of Conservative backbenchers and the Conservative home website. And at that party... 
I saw Liz Truss for the first time as Prime Minister. And she came bounding over to me and she said, hello, Timothy Shipman. I said, hello, Elizabeth Truss. I've not been able to call you Prime Minister before, so hello, Prime Minister. We had a bit of a chat. What I didn't know until later was that an hour before that conversation, she had had Quasi Quarting, her chance of the Exchequer, in her suite upstairs and had basically said, we have to scrap the 45p top rate of tax announcement that we made, basically unpick the main part of their mini-budget. And she must have known in her heart of hearts at that point that the wheels were falling off, that essentially what she'd come into Downing Street to try and do was falling apart, was not working. The markets had tanked, her MPs had gone into revolt. And you wouldn't have known any of that from looking her in the eye. She was totally, she gave quite a sort of uh, polished speech at this event. Morally and economically. She seemed determined to battle on, but she was already done for. Part of her must have known that was the first and probably the last time you'd be calling her Prime Minister. And indeed it was. (laughs) Well, this year, it's going to be a very different scene. What are you expecting it to look like for a start? Because you can always tell how well a party's doing by how full the conference hall is. The only MPs I've found who are planning to attend are ones who want to go and cause trouble on the fringe and explain why the Prime Minister isn't doing things uh, as they would like. So you're going to have an attempt by Rishi Sunak and his team and the sort of party high command to orchestrate what they hope is the sort of beginning of the the bounce back, putting Rishi Sunak on the map, explaining to the country who he really is and what he's going to stand for and what essentially he's going to campaign on at the next general election. And what if he were to miraculously win that election the next five or six years might look like. And behind the scenes and on the fringe, you're going to have a lot of cabinet ministers turning up to make speeches, put in appearances And what they're doing is manoeuvring for position to try and be the person who gets picked to do the job next, assuming Sunak does not succeed in pulling that off. So it's going to be a conference of two tiers. And no conference is ever completely boring and no conference, because of the arduous nature of it, is ever completely fun. This one won't be as much fun as last year, but it may be more significant than it first appears. And for Rishi Sunak's team... You know, as you say, they must be in desperate organisational mode right now, trying to work out what they want the next few days to look like. What do they need to achieve for this conference to be deemed a success? They want to turn up and show that this is a guy who's got some ideas and is prepared to tackle some difficult subjects, but also to offer some red meat to the Conservative base and some retail offerings to the public, because right now, Rishi Sunak's virtues have been spun as, you know, this is a guy who is a decent administrator, can keep the show on the road, is not prone to the kind of hiccups that his two predecessors were all too prone to. But there's not much there for the public who are still suffering in silence at the the cost of living crisis. And we know from the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, and from what they've said in Downing Street, that the autumn statement that's coming up in a further six or seven weeks down the line is not going to offer tax cuts because the economy is still, while it's turning, it's still fragile. But they want to be able to say, here's some stuff on, you know, immigration, schools, the economy, crime, whatever it is where the public feels that the Tory party is at least trying to get on their side. And it's been obviously a long year for the party, but it's also been a long year for Rishi Sunak. You've written that there have sort of been almost three versions of Rishi Sunak we've seen unfold since he took office. Talk us through those. I mean, going back to when he first took power, how would you describe that phase? 
Well, look, the country had been through a seven-year psychodrama and Rishi Sunak tried to present himself as the sort of antidote to that. We'd had the collapse of Boris Johnson, we'd had the pandemic, we'd had Brexit, we'd had six weeks of Trussian chaos. And his team and he very strongly thought the public are sick to death of this. They want to see a bit less of politics and politicians. So they deliberately tried to dial it down, get on with the grinding business of government, show that you could do that without having to have a crisis every five minutes. And I think to start with, they did that reasonably successfully. And I think that period probably culminated in March with Sunak getting his Windsor agreement with Brussels. I believe the Windsor framework marks a turning point for the people of Northern Ireland. To try and close down some of the problems that they'd had with the, the two previous Brexit deals. This means we have removed any sense of a border in the Irish Sea. It was very hard work, but I think both sides were at that point interested in dealing and the EU saw in Rishi Sunak someone they could do business with more straightforwardly. Um, Less psychodrama. Yeah, and that was for a Prime Minister who was desperate to show that someone who works hard delves deeply into the detail and is capable of going and having a grown-up conversation with others around the world. That was a very good shop front for the virtues of Rishi Sunak. After that, I think between March and the start of the summer, you had a situation where the wheels began to fall off a little bit. At the start of January, Sunak had uh, outlined these five things he wanted to achieve this year, three of them economic, plus stopping the small boats and cutting the NHS waiting lists. None of them, were by the middle point of the year, were going terribly well. Inflation was stubbornly high. Public sector strikes were making it pretty impossible to make much progress, either economically or in terms of cutting those waiting lists. And while some progress was being made on small boats, I think they would claim to have reduced the numbers by sort of 15 to 20% this year, which given that they were supposed to rise by about 50%, the estimates at the start of the year, that's not a, a bad achievement, but it's not quite what he said he was going to do. Ultimately, mm. hasn't stopped the boats. I think Sunak was getting very frustrated by that. And while some of his team shared those frustrations, I think some of them were beginning to get frustrated with him and think, mate, you're in a funk, you need to pull out of this. Mm. The Tories were drifting, if anything, further behind Labour in the polls. And by July, several of them were keen to give him a firm kick up the backside. And then he kind of gave himself a bit of a kick up the backside. And what's happened since we're in sort of into phase three is largely the result of the sort of analysis that Sunak had done himself of his first six, seven, eight months in power. Well, tell us about that, because you do have a moment in July, just before he goes off on holiday to California, where he tries to seize control and is, is, is trying to sort of define what this third stage, this new Rishi Sunak will be. Just describe the scene for us. How does all of this unfold? So in July, he called a meeting. Most Downing Street meetings are sort of diarised and this was an occasion where Sunak just called together a bunch of his senior aides, Liam Boothsmith, his chief of staff, Isaac Levido, who will run the, the general election campaign, you know, his head of policy, a few others. It was quite a small cast list. And he basically said, this is what I've worked out. You're all looking for me to have some vision. I'm not sure if this amounts to a vision, but it amounts to a way of governing. And they're trying to turn a way of governing into a virtuous thing that can then be sold to the public. And what he basically decided was that too many decisions were being made for the short term, better to make long-term decisions, regardless of whether they would then have an impact in time for a general election. And what his MPs were looking for was something they can sell on the doorstep and something that will bear fruit before May or before October next year, which are the two most likely dates for a general election. Sunak basically said, 
no, we're going to make a virtue of trying to solve some of the long-term problems. And the net zero announcement that he made a couple of weeks ago now, that was all about trying to grip a difficult issue and say, actually, there is a better way of doing this. But what he wants to try and convince the public of is that he's a serious person who can do this. And if he's given more time, he will tackle a lot of these issues. And he would say, oh, I've got a track record of doing this. Now, this at least gives focus to Rishi Sunak. And and his team were glad. They went away thinking, you know, at least he thought about it. This is who he wants to be. That gives us something to work with. But whether just being a sort of competent leader who makes long-term decisions is going to be enough to win a general election, I think is uh, a very moot point and uh, highly questionable. So at the end of this big moment in July where you have this whole new vision for how they're going to sell themselves, you also get, just in time for party conference season, you also get a slightly clumsy new slogan. Uh, Yes, and it's long-term solutions for a brighter future which is a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) It's not quite get Brexit done, but it does encapsulate what Sunak's all about. As you said, we've now started, since they've come back from their respective holidays, we've started to see what some of the policies around this change might look like, beginning with the change on net zero. What is our new approach to achieving net zero? Well, first, we need to change the debate which for a lot of people looked like they were turning their back a bit on the green agenda. Absolutely. And this is the danger for Sunak and the challenge for Sunak. Sunak can say, I'm making sensible long-term decisions. But some of those decisions are going to alienate people and are going to upset people. The proposal for government to interfere in how many passengers you can have in your car, I've scrapped it. The proposal that we should force you to have seven different bins in your home, I've scrapped it. The proposal to make you change your diet and harm British farmers by taxing meat, or to create new taxes to discourage flying or going on holiday. I've scrapped those too. And nor will we ban new oil and gas in the North Sea. I think most fair-minded observers, if they had listened to what Sunak actually said in his press conference, would have found it relatively balanced and saying we're still one of the world leaders in this, but we need to do it in a slightly different way. And actually, people haven't been honest with you so far about quite what that will mean. And he got slightly criticised for reeling out a series of policies that he was blocking. Seven recycling bins outside your house or a meat tax or compulsory car sharing. But when you delve into the detail of some of the government papers, you will see that some of that stuff is factored in to the government's assumptions. So had Rishi Sunak been able to announce this himself sort of cold... I think it would have created slightly less hysteria than it did. But no, clearly, there are lots of people upset that this is the wrong signal to be sending. As a long-term policy, he hasn't actually explained how we are going to get to net zero. No, and he hasn't obviously taken the public with him on this yet. No. Um, and this is going to be the problem. Part of the reason decisions are often short-term yeah. is because the long-term decision can be quite unpopular. So if the Prime Minister is now going to use this philosophy of government to make a series of unpopular decisions, the chances of him winning re-election disappear from quite unlikely to vanishingly impossible. Yeah. So we don't know how it's going to play out with the voters. Do we know how it's played out with his own party? Well, look, I think... There's a general happiness that they're back on the front foot and announcing things that people have noticed. Some people in the party who have been withering about Sunak and regarding him as a bit centrist and a bit wishy-washy are very happy indeed and think that this is a sort of reclaiming of common sense against this sort of woke nonsense. But undoubtedly, there are 
a group of MPs who were very unhappy and one of quite a close friend of mine was furious about all this and saying it was going to make it much more likely that they stood down at the next election because they don't particularly wow. want to be part of a a Tory party that's slipping back in this perception to being sort of a bit old-fashioned and a bit whispering quietly the nasty party. It's back. The other big policy change that has been talked about ever since is HS2. Talk us through that. Well, I wish I could. I wish I knew what they were going to do. <laughs> it's still I up mean, in the air. Every man Jack who I speak to says that they're going to scrap the northern leg of it, that Sunak, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, regarded as a colossal waste of money and tried to get Boris Johnson to ditch it. They're obviously short of cash. The alternative seems to be an HS2 that doesn't even run into central London, which <laughs> uh, seems to be sort of likely to defeat the point of having like it. But again, you're caught between what makes sense financially and that however much money it saves, there's obviously huge sunk costs that have gone into it. Yeah. But the other big issue then, like the net zero one, is that it signals as well. It's mm. a big signaller. So if you're living in the north, getting some HS2 to link you to the south is popular with a lot of these northern mayors and people who live in the M62 corridor. And the Red Wall. And the Red Wall. And scrapping bits of it would be problematic. Again, they now seem to be procrastinating. The decision seems to have been delayed until well after conference. We were told a week ago that it might be uh, on Friday or even on Monday of this week. That's all changed. And it now looks like it's been punted into at least the medium-length grass. Wow. So you've got two policies there, one which seems to appeal to the Red Wall, the other which alienates them. So nothing consistent there. But also, if, if all your rhetoric is about the long term, you're basically turning your back on... Two projects there. One about climate, which people immediately will associate with the long term, one of the biggest challenges we face. And the other, I mean, given the sunk costs and given that it's an infrastructure project, to abandon it doesn't seem like to most voters will just sort of feel like you're not thinking about the long term. I think you need to see the next sort of six or seven weeks as one kind of big rolling event. You've got the Tory conference, then the Labour conference. Unusual that Labour's normally before the Tories probably a benefit to Labour to go second. The Tories can then re-grab the initiative with the King's Speech and the Autumn Statement. And I think by the time we get to Christmas, we'll have a stronger view about whether Sunak has made people look again at him and perhaps look differently at him. Coming up, what else can we expect to see on the next Tory party manifesto? What have we learnt about Sunakism and when will the next election be held? That's in just a moment. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Tim, we've talked about net zero. We've talked about HS2. What else is on the agenda? We've sort of heard hints about things like inheritance tax, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's been floating around. It was something that Sunak was close-ish to announcing during his leadership bid against Liz Truss. Don't forget back in 2007 when David Cameron and George Osborne were sort of in trouble. Gordon Brown looked like he was about to call a general election. Osborne basically announced inheritance tax cuts at the Tory conference. He and won the, at conference. And the, and the, yeah, I mean, and the polls kind of moved a bit and Gordon Brown lost his nerve and there wasn't an election. So in the Tory folklore, inheritance tax is a popular thing to do. People who study these things will say, well, hardly anybody pays it and it's kind of irrelevant. But politically it is relevant because it's the most hated tax in Britain by a distance and weirdly at every single decile. So, you know... Even though people don't pay it? Even though people don't pay it. Lots of people don't know that they don't pay it and lots of people aspire to be in a position where they might pay it. No one thinks they'll do it before a budget in March. But you can imagine a world in which Sunak sets out some aspirations in his speech at conference that are then realised in March. And what else do we know about the, the policies he's really interested in? What else is he, is he trying, you know, what are his, his desperate urges to, to get on the manifesto, to get done? Well, we keep being told he's passionate about education mm. and regards that as the way people move up and on in the world. And his personal sort of credo is that people need to study maths particularly, but maths and English all the way to 18. And at the moment, obviously, we specialise much more heavily in this country than most nations do and people do their three or four A levels and the indications are that they're going to scrap A levels and replace them with some kind of baccalaureate system where yes you would focus on things but you would keep studying English and maths. There's also a suggestion they've made noises about this before but not really made any significant moves that the university courses that don't really add much to the person doing them but still cost the same amount as every other degree Mm. something ought to be done about that so that seems to be a passion i mean there will be crime stuff he's obviously along with suella braverman a bit obsessed with immigration in terms of having this great long-term vision i think people are probably more surprised by what they're not looking at if you take 10 people who work in the health service and ask them for the one thing that they would like to do to try and solve it. They would say you need to merge health and social care. You need to integrate the two. You need to have a system where people can be moved out of hospital beds and looked after in the community if all they require is popping in once a week to have something done, let it happen in their own homes. And there's been a lot of big talk about having a sort of integrated budget. And one of the things I'm told very clearly he won't be doing is anything to do with that. Now, there are again, good short-term political reasons why you might not. Theresa May's 2017 general election campaign catastrophically tumbled to the earth on the back of reforms to social care. And if you think back to immediately after the pandemic, the first big political thing Boris Johnson wanted to do was uh, sort out social care. And Rishi Sunak, who was his chancellor, said, well, that's all very well, but how are you going to pay for it? And we'll then have to put up national insurance to pay for it. And They then spent the remaining time that Boris Johnson had in power arguing about whose fault it was that national insurance had gone up, Boris Johnson for wanting to do the policy or Rishi Sunak for forcing him to pay for it. And if you were looking 
for one long-term solution that's difficult to do in the short-term political sphere. That would make a real difference. It would make a real difference. You would think that that might be top of your list. Equally, it goes to show that there's there's only so much long-term thinking you can do if you want to win a general election. <laughs> well, similarly, you know, one of the other things that's sort of been mooted is looking again at the pensions triple lock, but it, that seems to be another long-term policy that he's not really willing to touch. Uh, he doesn't want to touch it now. As far as I know, Rishi Sunak, I'm pretty clear he wants to do something about the pensions triple lock. He's said it repeatedly in the past. He thinks it's uneconomic. He thinks that the incentives are wrong. He thinks that there's lots of rich pensioners getting more money than they need. And um, there are other ways to protect those that don't have so much. And that it costs, particularly at a time of high inflation, absolutely vast sums of money, which is effectively taken away from working age people and giving to people who've stopped working. But this runs up against a very serious problem that the over 65s vote in highly disproportionate numbers. And they also vote disproportionately for the Conservative Party. (laughs) If I were guessing, and he won a majority at the next general election of some size, I think that's exactly the kind of thing he would probably want to do something about. Well, you use the words, as, as far as I know, Rishi Sunak. From all of this, from the way he's behaved over the past year, from the policies he seems to be obsessed with, what do we now know about Rishi Sunak the man? And what do we know about... Sunakism, if there is such a thing. Sunak has acquired a philosophy of government. I don't think Boris Johnson ever had one of those, so that's something. Um, (laughs) He thinks about what he's doing in a way that I don't think Theresa May particularly did and plans ahead. She kind of just dealt with everything as it landed in front of her. And Though there is a lot of similarity between Sunak, May and Gordon Brown in the way they like to tackle issues, which is to stare endlessly at bits of paper and hope that the answer presents itself. Uh, As a member of the cabinet who is not the biggest fan of this approach uh, said to me recently, this is like the sort of homework student thinking there's a homework answer sheet somewhere if you look hardly enough for it, and there isn't one. You have to make some decisions. And all three of those leaders have sometimes had difficulty making decisions. So there's a kind of political philosophy there. There's a governing philosophy. I don't think there's yet a sort of campaigning philosophy. And I think... Some of the people who know Rishi Sunak well, who've been a little bit disappointed with his performance as Prime Minister, would say he's a little bit confused about what he thinks about things now. Um, If you met Rishi Sunak pre-2016, yes, he made a big call on Brexit. He was quite pro that for sort of internationalist reasons rather than the kind of sovereignty and sort of nativist reasons that some people backed it. But, you know, his worldview was, if you asked him how to boost growth, he'd have told you he'd cut tax. And then he becomes the Chancellor of the Exchequer who creates the largest British state since the Second World War during furlough um, and raises the tax burden to its highest level ever. Did he want to do those things? I mean, he sort of knew that furlough was what needed to happen and his argument would now be that that worked and we kept people close to the workplace and we'd have had 8 million people unemployed if he hadn't done it. And in terms of the practicalities of how that worked out, you know, furlough is the kind of project, had it been sort of dreamt up cold by the Treasury it would have taken about 18 months minimum to sort out. When they got to that point with the pandemic, there was a conversation in number 10 and they asked the Treasury officials how long, given that we've got no time how long will it take? And they said six months. They said, well that's great but you've got six weeks. And Sunak and his aides they turned that around and it worked and it didn't fall apart and so I think we know that he's quite a good administrator. Not everybody's going to agree with what he chooses 
to do and how he chooses to go about it. But in terms of the process, it's pretty good. I think what we've discovered that we didn't necessarily know about Rishi Sunak is that he is a little bit more allergic to criticism than we perhaps thought. You see him in some of those media interviews where he gets quite defensive and a little bit sort of snippy. Yeah. Where was the proposal uh, for a tax well, you on me? the Committee for Climate Change earlier. I mean, actually, if you look in their reports, they talked uh, very specifically about saying it's particularly important that we see an accelerated shift, in their words, in our diets away from meat and dairy. But I've just spoken they, to them, I've just interviewed them, uh, and they well, said there is no mention of a tax on meat in any of their reports. If you, if you look at their report, it talks about an accelerated shift away from dairy and meat. It mm, says that's not that, a tax on meat. It says, well, it and that, that whole that, period uh, of his where he's sort of moaning that I worked terribly hard and why is it not working? There's a slight element of the head boy at Winchester who can't quite understand that it's difficult and why isn't he being rewarded for getting into the office at half past seven every morning and not going upstairs again until 11 o'clock. And I think that suggestion of that friend that he sort of intellectually lost his way a little bit is quite interesting. He's a bit less certain about things. And I think... I think government can do that to anybody, hmm. but it's certainly done it to him. And what will be interesting for the next few months is to discover whether there is one last sort of string to his bow and whether he can now learn to distill, you know, the good things he does, learn to improve some of the things where he's been found wanting and kind of tie up with a bow with a sort of energetic campaign that combines intellectual coherence with a sort of energizer bunny approach um he's never quite going to do a Boris Johnson but maybe he can present himself in the kind of way John Major did in 1992 as a sort of speaking the truth you know he can legitimately say I was warning about inflation two years before anybody else he can legitimately say I said all this stuff a year ago to go back to where we began would be a disaster I warned Liz Truss it would be a disaster I could have trimmed my sails in that leadership election and tried to say what the party wanted me to say and I didn't. I kept saying it because I knew it was right. I'd been proved right. And he can kind of make that argument. No politician is a, a grand success story. All their strengths turn into their weaknesses. And if you look back at that period of, of the rule, you would say that some combination of David Cameron's song foire and Theresa May's duty and Boris Johnson's sort of charisma and frontman operation and Liz Truss's intellectual conviction and Rishi Sunak's ability to sort of get on with the grinding business of government would be a very, very good prime minister. And he's got to show he's more than one fifth of that monster and grab some of the virtues from elsewhere. And in terms of affecting the outcome of the next election, you watch these things very closely. When do we think that'll be? Look, everybody I speak to tells me that Isaac Levito is working on the basis that it will be in October of next year. The theory being that a lot of what Sunak's trying to do will not have borne fruit much before the middle of next year, particularly on immigration, where they're still waiting for the Supreme Court ruling on the sort of expulsions to Rwanda. If they were to win that, which should come sometime in October, that would allow them to start showing that that policy was working, but they'd need a few months to kind of show that to the public. And they think, you know, the economy keeps turning and gradually gets better and you can run an argument that things are getting better, don't let Labour ruin it. The counter-view to that, which I know is shared by a lot of sort of sharper strategists, I'm told that David Cameron has also privately talked about this, is why don't you go on the same day as the local elections in May? And if you do, you would need to have seen 
enough of an opinion poll change and enough in the sort of subtext of the numbers that suggests that the public has noticed that the economy has got better. That would then allow you to run the same argument. You would not then have disappointing local elections that knock you back. You would not then have another summer of small boats. You would not then have what I'm told is between May and October, about 150,000 more people having to remortgage and discovering that interest rates, whilst coming down, are still much higher than they were when they last remortgaged. Yeah. And that it might make sense to grasp the nettle and just jump in, in May. But then you talk to others and they say, well, what would the opinion poll gap need to be for you to have the nerve to do that? And I was talking to someone who's been in Downing Street a fair bit and has run campaigns. I think we agreed that it certainly couldn't be more than 7% behind. And even then, jumping when you're seven points behind is... A brave decision. It's pretty brave. And Rishi Sunak, whilst I think he's got boldness in him, I think he's prepared to make difficult decisions. When those difficult decisions determine the whole future of your government, it's quite easy not to make difficult decisions in that situation and to hope that something turns up and that things will get better. And by law, he doesn't have to call an election until January 2025. So if I were putting my 20 new English pounds on a date, I would still say October. But there's probably more money to be made by having a bit of a swing at May and hoping that uh, events take that course. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Chief Political Commentator at The Sunday Times, Tim Shipman. You can read Tim's insights from the party conference over the weekend at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.